Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarlane, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster. Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is John Ferreira. John has worked as a user experience practitioner since 1999 and began designing video games in 2001. His nutrition education game Fitter Critters was a top prize winner in the 2010 Apps for Healthy Kids contest sponsored by Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, and it is currently being tested in public elementary schools. John is the author of Playful Design, Creating Game Experience in Everyday Interfaces. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave in their conversation with John. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Hi, Christopher. Uh, it's it's going well. It's hot here in Portland, which I'm not really, you know, I mean, the rest of the country is baking. But when it gets to, it's almost 100, when it gets to that, we poor Northwesterners start to wilt pretty significantly. So yeah. it's yeah. Uh, tough yeah. on us. <laughs> yeah, you're coming from Portland, Oregon, and then... And uh, I'm from Austin, Texas, so where it's like uh, it's right. 100 degrees for the last like two weeks. Right. So, so um, and most of the rest of the country has had heat waves, so I, I should not complain. But yeah, uh, uh, other than that, things are going great. I'm working on the next edition of my CSS book, which should be out by sometime end of the year or something like that. So that's awesome. kind of exciting, and I'm really looking forward to talking to uh, John today because yeah. I'm actually really interested in mm-hmm. games and game design and i've read tons of books on it so i'm right. interested to pick his brain yeah awesome well let's bring him on hey john are you here hey hey john welcome to the show thanks so much oh glad you're here uh why don't you just uh, kick things off and just tell us uh how you got into web design and maybe also the game uh industry as well Sure. So I started in web design back in 1999 at a little uh, consultancy uh, called IXL in New York City. I was straight out of grad school, um, and you know, it was something I fell into and I really loved. Uh, at the same time, you know, I had a love for interactive experiences in general. Um, and at the time, I was really into gaming. And um, you know, as I was learning the ropes of user experience design. I just continuously saw overlap between the experiences I was having at home with video games and the experiences that I was designing at work uh, and in, interacting with on the web myself. And I saw a lot of synergy and a lot of harmony um, between these sort of sibling disciplines of design. Um, because I mean, both after after all were a form of human computer interaction. Uh, and I thought that you know it seemed like there was there there was so much to be learned um, between these disciplines uh, that was something I wanted uh, you know I wanted to investigate further for a long time um, and then I got more opportunities later on at at different jobs to actually design some games uh, as user experiences which was interesting and fun and challenging and cool um, and. Uh, and, and then after a few years, I started giving presentations on it um, at conferences, and I guess people liked it and it ended up turning into a book, which is Playful Design. Um, and that came out in May. And uh, I'm really excited about it because it's a chance for me to get those ideas out. So you created a game called uh, Fitter Critters. And That's it right. was a, a prize winner, 2010 Apps for Healthy Kids contest, which was uh, sponsored by Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that game? 
Sure. So that was a nutrition education game um, done as a um, sort of a virtual pet simulator where you get this little critter that you um, are responsible for raising. And it, it plays out over several weeks. You interact for a couple of minutes a day um, over an extended period of time, sort of like, you know, a Farmville type of model. Uh, and you, f- you you feed it. You um, you go to a grocery store and buy food for it. Um, and to do that, you have to read, to make better choices, you have to read the food labels. Uh, and for your critter to get healthier, in particular, you need to um, select foods that fill a number of positive nutritional attributes, things like vegetables and dairy and protein and whole grain, while avoiding filling bars um, for uh, for solid fats and added sugar. And there's some limitations on calories as well. Um, so, I mean, it's 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 kind of like it's a little bit like The Sims in that way, in that there are character attributes that you are um, building up over time, and each day you have to fill all of these eight green bars without filling any of the red bars. And um, if you do that successfully, then gradually over time, your critter becomes healthier and stronger. You also get to exercise it in sports competitions. And there's a, mm-hmm. a, um, there's a relationship between those things that, um, uh, that the healthier your critter is eating and the healthier it's becoming, the better it will fare in those sports competitions and the greater benefit you'll get from it. And then that ultimately feeds into this laddered reward system where um, – um, you know, you, you are more productive at work. Uh, you are more successful at sports games. And those all earn you currency inside the game, which you can then use for a variety of things, not only buying more food, but for extending and decorating your critter's house. Uh, and so it leads into this creativity mechanic where you get to, you know, um, buy a, uh, a shag rug or, um, uh, or French doors and install them <laughs> in your home. And, um, and you get a, a fancier and fancier home. And then ultimately that leads into social rewards too, because critters can visit one another's houses and see, you know, they, you can show off how you've tricked out your pad to other people. <laughs> um, and uh, there's also a cooking mechanic in it where you can take foods and combine them uh, into prepared meals. And there's an algorithm in the game that scores the nutritional quality of that meal. Um, and based upon that, it, um, uh, it'll, it'll assign a value to it, which if it's a really nutritious meal will, um, be more valuable than the cost of the ingredients you put into it. Um, and so we're, we're creating a way to, um, to put specific value to different food choices. Hmm. Um, and, and then there's a social learning mechanic where players can, uh, then opt to sell that, um, that meal. And then that meal becomes available to other players in the game and they get to learn from the things that, um, that, that, that you managed to accomplish in putting that meal together. Um, <laughs> And so, and so it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly robust game. It was basically in a demo stage um, back at that time. And uh, yeah, like you said, we, um, uh, we entered into a contest called Apps for Healthy Kids uh, that was run by Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. And, uh, and we won. We took, um, we took second place. Um, and, uh, you know, we, there was a ceremony. We toured the White House. It was actually pretty freaking cool. That's awesome. Um, is is yeah, this an iOS game or a tablet game? Or we're we're adapting it to iOS. Um, we we actually created it um, like about two months after the original iPad came out, and we hadn't realized what a credible gaming platform tablets were actually mm-hmm. going to be. And so we developed it in Flash. Um, so of course, it's necessarily not iOS at the moment, but um, we're working on a version that will adapt it to iOS because we believe that's a really great platform for it. Yeah, and the, the game is based on a theory called um, procedural rhetoric, which is um, uh, it, it comes from a book called um, Persuasive Games, written by Ian Bogost. And I think the procedural rhetoric is actually my favorite idea ever. Um, it's this idea that um, that games are are able to 
convey meaning procedurally um, through the process of playing, um, and that they can you can embed persuasive messages inside of games, uh, and that when people um, uh, uncover these messages, they're not uncovered overtly; they're uncovered through the pl- through the process of interaction with the game. Um, and so, as they as they uncover the insights that um, you, that you're driving people toward, it feels like that person's own personal discovery. It feels like something that they've internalized, they've discovered on their own. Um, and so, it's it's a very effective means of creating persuasion. I think that's very important for something like childhood obesity, which is mm-hmm. profoundly a cultural problem. You know, because we grow up eating. Um, cheeseburgers and hot dogs and french fries and that you know that just kind of becomes bound up in who we are as americans and that's one tough nut to crack for there to be real substantive change kids need to learn to value different food choices and i think that's a reason why um why why a game is an excellent choice because it has these advantages these unique attributes like procedural rhetoric and uh, furthermore, it, um, it, games have this cultural legitim- legitimacy to them. You know, it's, it's a great way to, um, uh, to introduce new ideas to people. Mm-hmm. So uh, bringing this all to the web, why, why should web designers care about games? What can that do for us? Oh boy, for so many reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because, but l- l- let me start with um, uh, just innovation. The fact that um, that games are kind of out there on the edge, you know, they they try to differentiate themselves from one another in a lot of ways, and very often that comes down to the interface that they're using. And I think that that sort of makes games into an excellent laboratory for um, for human computer interaction. And so, um, you, you know, there there are great examples of um, of motion control that are coming out of um, out of games these days. Uh, you know, between from the um, from Sony's original iToy, which was an amazing peripheral. Uh, and a, a really, really clever um, use of motion control technology um, to, of course, the Wii and uh, the Kinect and everything like that. Those are probably forerunners of things that we're going to see in the future. And I mean, already you see um, Microsoft putting like a, a big drive behind uh, finding uh, innovations, uh, innovative uses for Kinect type technology beyond the Kinect itself. And you know, right. Johnny Chung Lee created all these uh, incredible different uses for for uh, for Wii technology. And it's it's great to see that stuff in advance and to start to imagine um, how these things can be used. And you know, games provide an innovative platform for that. And then you look at something like the Wii U, um, which uses these these really neat linked displays. Not only are you using your television screen, but in tandem you're using a screen that you're holding in your hand. And there are a lot of possibilities that come out of that. And um, the the possibilities for creating linked displays, uh, I think, are really interesting. And um, and and then you know. Uh, uh, even something like Siri. When I use Siri, it really, really reminds me of text-based adventures from <laughs> like the late, late 1970s and early 80s. That's a oh, lot yeah. of interaction, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know? Because you, know, you type something, it doesn't know what you mean at all. Exactly. Yeah. It's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have voice control. I mean, th- there were those those glaring problems where there are huge gaps in its ability to understand it, and it's kind of amusing to see the way that the um, uh, that the that the designers cope with that. And you know, in both cases, they use sort of very similar strategies, um, where ten it it like hooks onto one thing that you said and tangentially tries to answer it, um, uh, and. 
but but at the same time, you know, a lot of the interactions that um, uh, that you have with Siri these days were sort of anticipated um, by those adventure by those those adventure games. So, um, you know, I, th- I think that in it, that the innovations that games present to us are one um, really valuable aspect of um, of game design. There's also um, sort of an inspiration aspect to them, where um, you know they can show uh, really unique ways of approaching. Um, interface design that you that, that you might not normally get exposure to, and so um, there are games that have like incredible information density inside them, like uh, Tiny Tower and uh, uh, Final Fantasy XII has these um, amazing screens uh, for equipping armor and uh, you know determining the relative merits of of, of different armors, uh, and it even has a sort of a lightweight programming interface inside of it for programming the uh, the actions of your characters and using them as agents, uh, and I think. That, that all of that um, has driven a lot of the designs that I've done personally uh, in, um, in, in web design and in software design um, that you know, I, I might not have had that kind of an insight without having played these games in the first place. And then additionally, there's the value of games themselves. I think that we should begin to look at games as um, part of our personal UX toolkit, you know, as something that we internalize, as something that we can employ uh, in places where we feel it's going to be useful. I think that games can achieve great things in the real world. I think that a lot of the ways that it's being done these days are very questionable. Um, but you know, I think in particular, if user experience designers really start to adopt games and internalize them as something that that they own as a, as as one means of achieving um, their ends, then I think that really high quality player experiences that are very satisfying and very engaging can be um, uh, can be brought to market. So, uh, say you're a web design you have a website and maybe you know we could say it's e-commerce or something that you are not necessarily building games on the web is there ways to incorporate game-like experience to more traditional websites that would enhance uh the experience of visitors you know i want to be really cautious um with that because there is a um a fad going on right now that you've probably heard of called gamification mm-hmm, sure. um and uh uh, um, gamification, where to begin? I think that this is a really wrong-headed approach um, because fundamentally it's... So, about- I mean, just to, just to back up for our listeners sure. and, and just to give a little bit of context, um, I mean, I think maybe most people would be, uh, um, you know, aware of Foursquare, for example, as being one of the sure. most prominent examples of gamification, this idea that you get badges and rewards for completing certain tasks, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's been a lot of imitators, and there's a lot of sites that have badges that you're awarded for whatever you've done forums for example a lot of forum software now has badges and i think that is you know <clears throat> kind of what many people see is is right. gamification and so right. maybe and you could know, talk a little bit to that why that's not really a great way of creating a game like experience for example sure sure i mean i i think that the um the real problem with that uh is is that it's 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 a huge simplification of what a game actually is. It's not you're not really designing a game at that point at all. Basically, what people are doing is they're taking um, game elements or game mechanics and bolting them onto something that remains otherwise unchanged. And when you do that, you really can't expect it to have the same effect that actual games have and to um, reap the same benefits that actual ga- that actual games create. Um, I, I think that. Um, 
there's a very imprecise definition for gamification right now. And I mean, people use it so broadly that in some cases it could refer to something that, um, that I very much support. I mean, um, uh, a lot of people talk about uh, games for health and games for education and uh, a lot of examples that, that come out of that as a form of gamification. Um, fine. More often, gamification is about really simplistically uh, putting points and badges onto a user experience. And I mean, I think that has a, uh, a saturation point um, where, you know, if you're, you're getting points for eating your Captain Crunch and you're getting points for brushing your teeth and you're getting points for riding the bus. You know, after a while, people are going to start to say, I don't, I don't care how many fucking points I get from this <laughs> um, because it's 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 all just the same experience and it's it's valueless um i mean i think that that the, that the real mistake there is that it doesn't value gameplay and that's a problem because then people will not value it. Um, the reason why people engage in games in the first place is because they enjoy the experience. It's because it creates um, something that's fulfilling for them, something that's in, that, um, th that is challenging and something that, um, that, that, that fully engages their intellect. It often has narrative associated with it. These are the things that people enjoy about games. And um, to sort of steal away the cheapest elements um, of uh, of game design, and uh, and and put them onto something that you're not otherwise going to make an effort to make into a truly enjoyable experience is somehow cynical and often exploitative. Um, uh, you know, I th I think that that that's where the big mistake comes in with with a lot of implementations of gamification. Uh, and so, you know, I, th I think there's a big hype cycle. Gardner has has its um, hype cycle, um, and I think that it's it's a perfect picture of where mm -hmm. gamification is right now, where you know it's cresting this. Um, peak of inflated expectations and bound to collapse down into a trough of dis disillusionment as people start to implement this and realize that surprise, surprise, it doesn't do the things they expected it to do or that it was sold to do. Right. Do you think uh, um, the problems with uh, Zynga or like the, not the problems, but the, I'm not sure we heard the Zynga stuff or, or whatnot, but uh, like they're kind of like, you know, like I heard like stories of, uh, I came out with, uh, I think a blog post or something like that, that uh, you know, their their uh, their stock their stock uh, crashed a little bit or something like that. So, so you think yeah. that's an indicate uh, indicator of like gamification, pretty much like you know hitting that well, hitting that, that bottom. That that depends upon whether you define Zynga as gamification, and yeah. um, you know I, I tend not to. I think that um, that that Zynga. To a great extent, is about is about designing games and about designing fulfilling experiences. I think that sometimes they get a little bit astray with that, um, mm -hmm. and I think they do tend to become a little bit exploitative. Um, but I think that that discussion is distinct from a discussion of what people typically talk about with gamification. I mean, if we yeah. use the term gamification to describe something um, uh, as so broadly as to include something like um, like Farmville or Cityville, then I think it's truly a useless term because yeah. uh, truly a useless term because it fails to make meaningful distinctions between meaningfully dissimilar things. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but but you know I, I do think that um, I, I mean I've played a lot of Zynga games. I, uh, I I played a lot of Farmville and I played an awful lot of Cityville. And for a long time I really loved it. You know I think that they do start to make um, mis mistakes at a certain point where um, where they were 
require too much of you and and you you stop being able to advance and the fun sort of just drops out of it mm-hmm. um but i think that's a mistake of the game design i don't think that yeah. that's that I, I don't think that's part of the discussion of gamification at all i think i mean i think one of the things that uh why gamification has sort of become this term and also has become diluted and and is is being kind of used in this exploitive way is that people, you know, they build these websites and they say, we want people to use it. And how do we right. encourage people to use it? Well, I've heard about this thing called gamification where basically right. we give them a badge and that's a motivator. And mm-hmm. all, this, all the game play is really based around trying to get people to interact with their... Uh, website, but not really to create a game like environment. It's it's just uh, they see it as uh, a, uh, what they think is a clever way to motivate interaction with their website, and I think right. that's where we've ended up with this this horrible, you know, raft of of websites that are basically just like that. You visited this Precisely. page one point, you know, you yeah. visited ten pages, you get the ten page right. visit badge, you know, right. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like I'm, I'm yeah. gonna print that up and hang it on my wall. <laughs> I, really, how long is that going to be something that's effective? I mean, I, I mean, it's clearly something that that is going to run out of steam awfully quickly. Uh, and I mean, yeah, that, that's that's exactly the problem is is that these things are not being conceived of first and foremost as true games. And I believe that games are valuable experiences in and of themselves. That there's no need to extract and import game elements into our world and bolt them onto um, uh, our websites uh, in order to, to, to try to cheaply uh, I- increase visits to the page or something like that. I mean, I think that that just doesn't work. And I think that um, uh, it's, it's a really cynical view of what gameplay is all about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it kind of lends itself like, hey, we need to do gamification in order to get people to go through our content, I, you know, because no one's right. going through our content. It's like, well, maybe we should look right. at our content. Right, right. Maybe that's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I mean, we've looked at some ideas of what gamification is in terms of a bad, bad examples. You know, just giving badges, just giving rewards, simply seeing it as a a motivator to interact with content. Um, Where do you see, and we don't have to use the word gamification, but where do you see examples of like game-like experience being applied well to websites? Um, Well... with with websites in particular, I'm not I'm not sure that there are a ton of great examples. There are some there are some really good examples that are a little bit outside of um, websites. Um, one of the things that I've that, that I've personally been using is an app called um, Zombies Run, um, which is uh, something you use when you're jogging and you um, uh, you, you listen along. Uh, while while you're out running and and you hear um, it, it has this narrative of a zombie apocalypse that you're running through, and so you know as you're running you're trying to get away from the zombies and you're ah, brains and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, and and I mean it's 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 actually really fun because because it works as a game experience. And um, you know a group that's doing some some really great work in this right now is um, at the uh, uh, University of Wisconsin Madison. Uh, and they're uh, they're putting together a variety of different games for educational purposes that I think are really really impressive. Um, they have created a platform called Aris, um, which is a location based um, game uh, game development platform, uh, and 
using it, they've created a whole bunch of different games where um, you go through specific physical locations and it tracks you using GPS um, and uh, and creates a game experience around your um, your real world travels. And uh, so, an example of this was they created this really cool game called um, Dow Day. Uh, which was about a, um, a, a historical event that happened in Madison where there was a protest at Dow Chemical that ended up turning into a riot. And, um, and, and in the game, you're, um, you're going around and you're uh, meeting characters inside the game from that period. You're interacting with events from that period. And you're visiting the various locations where things happened on that day. And there's a really interesting moment inside of it where, um, where you, you, the, the game directs you to the top of, um, of Bascom Hill in, uh, in Madison. Um, and when you reach that point, um, you can't un- you can't do this without without actually physically getting to this location. It unlocks a video um, front that of uh, actual footage taken from that day of mm-hmm. actual archival film footage of uh, of the protest and of the protesters marching up the hill that you're standing on. And so it's sort of like this magic window into the past as you're holding it up and you've just unlocked this um, this footage of people marching up the hill toward you. And so it's a really vivid experience um, that I think is 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 really in a way kind of extraordinary. Um, and uh, another thing that, um, that that I've been kind of impressed by is um, uh, something Nintendo created called the Poka Walker, um, which uh, uh, is is a little pedometer. Um, that actually has a game embedded inside of it, and it um, it sort of overlays a game experience onto um, onto your walk. Uh, so so you select you're going to be going through like the blue forest or something like that, and as you walk um, in the um, uh, in, in the game, the more steps you take, uh, you're actually journeying through this virtual world as you're journeying through the real world. Uh, and you can take it off and uh, take a look at it. And every once in a while, you'll come across something like uh, like a magic potion or something like that. So you're actually playing the game hmm. as you are uh, as you're going through the real world, which I think is really clever. Uh, and I think that that innovations like that are the kinds of things that. Um, uh, that that first of all really value gameplay and really value the quality of the player experience, um, but that also achieve something great in the real world. And then there are a lot of um, uh, I just got back from the well a couple of months ago I got back from the uh, Games for Health conference in Boston, which has just wonderful wonderful different innovations. Um, uh, of, of games that are being created for clinical practice um, and uh, for, for for behavior change and things like that um, that are that are so cleverly done. Um, uh, there was one that I was really impressed by called Project Ingenie, um, which was developed for uh, for children who have um, uh, developmental disabilities, uh, and it has a variety of different games inside of it that are that are true games, um, things like uh, like jigsaw puzzles um, and uh, and tracing games and uh, a number of different things, and it's, it's for young children. Um, who have cognitive or um, sensory motor uh, uh, disabilities, and it's it's actually training them to uh, to develop those skills better. Um, and so and so they they get to um, to develop their motor skills. Uh, they get to develop basic language skills using this. And the whole thing is packaged as a really great game. I mean, it's it's produced and designed extremely extremely well. Um, and you know, I think that's great because it so highly values what makes games appealing in the first place. 
Well, and Jane McGonigal has her yep. Super Better um, yeah. site that she launched. That was this this year or when it was into last year, um, right. which is basically a website that is uh, structured as a game for mm-hmm. achieving health uh, goals or overcoming injuries or or physical obstacles that you've got. Uh, you know that you've encountered in your life, and it's sort of structured as a quest with heroes, and you have allies and all of this stuff. So it's it's basically you know making it for you to achieve a health goal, but making it fun to do that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, I would encourage anybody to um, go out and find uh, Jane talking about Super Better on the web. There, um, there are a number of different places where she has discussed it. Um, I, I think it's a really impressive effort. I think it's something that um, that people should be looking to as um, you know a fantastic example of of how games can achieve great things in the real world, um, uh, because it, it is something that values gameplay and it is positioned as a real and true game. Um, uh, and and so I, th- I think it's a fantastic example. I'm really gl- glad that Jane is out there, uh, you know, advocating for these kinds of novel um, implementations of 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 gameplay. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things tying tying this back to um, like web design and and uh, UX design, uh, you know, Aaron Walter uh, wrote a book called Designing for Emotion, and that's kind of one of his things is talking about creating emotional design, you know, and that can be right. as simple as the copy on your site that engages you because it's funny, it makes you feel good. And uh, one of the things that, you know, is important about gameplay is, and you've talked about this, is that it makes us happy. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a website that makes you feel good, that makes you happy is a good thing. And Absolutely. that's going to win over a website that doesn't do that. And Absolutely. I think, you know, the way that we can try to bring games in and bring it in so that it's fun and and makes mm-hmm. us feel good is a way that we can think about how to engage a user base for our website. Yeah. And you know I think that um there are a lot of things like fun and charm that are just tremendously undervalued in user experience design right now that are part and parcel of game design. And I think that um you know looking to games for inspiration for how we can incorporate those elements into um into our design only makes um, our design's more successful and works to our benefit. And but for a game though, like it's it's um, like it, how important is the storytelling? Like the story behind the game? Like like the motivation? Like you, you know, we talked about uh, we talked about games like like Zombie Run, which is sure. which is like someone who's going to run but wants that added benefit of zombies right running behind them. Um, you know, to chase them. You know, so so there's some motivation already instilled, but you know. You know, there's a lot of games out there where, like, you know, if the story isn't really compelling, like, why am I acting as this, uh, you know, character going through there? Like, like, can you speak to, like, like the stories of, like, how to create sure. a compelling story? Is, is well, that- I, you know, I, th- I think that varies. I mean, there are some games, there are some games that don't have um, storylines at all, that have no narrative whatsoever. I mean, Tetris certainly doesn't, but it remains a compelling game experience. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there are some games that are built strongly around their narrative. You know, a lot of a lot of role-playing games depend entirely um, upon the narrative and they incorporate that into the gameplay. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that that the narrative is um, part of the uh, the aesthetic level mm-hmm. of uh, of a game's design. You know, that there are there are deeper, more fundamental layers to a game um, like the, uh, the the fundamental motivation behind it and the interestingness of the experience um, there's the uh, um, 
the, the choices that users make, um, both tactically and um, uh, uh, and and strategically. Uh, there's the um, there's the conflict inside the game. Um, all these deeper deeper layers of what make a game experience a game experience um, at its root. But then um, at the top level, you start to um, bring in more aesthetic elements. Um, you know where. Uh, there's the appearance of the game, there's the sound of the game, there's the force feedback, and there are things like the narrative. Um, and I think that that those are are very often really important parts of the experience as well. They enhance it. They, they, they don't necessarily constitute the core of the gameplay, the core mechanic of it, but they do enhance the experience and make it into something richer and deeper. Um, and so, you know, the, um, there are deeply narrative games like Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption, um, where the narrative itself is a very impressive thing. Um, but of course, over the course of the game, you're spending your time with, um, uh, with, with its core mechanic, with the riding and the shooting and um, uh, all the things that make uh, Red, Dem- Red Dead Redemption a sensory motor experience. Um, uh, and, th- and then I also think that narrative can be overdone sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if anybody who's played Metal Gear Solid 4 might know what I'm talking about. Uh, because that game has cutscenes in it that run for an hour and a half. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Um, seriously, and I mean, y- you have to ask, you know, who's that for? Uh, and furthermore, it doesn't tell you how long it's going to run uh, at any point. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I-, I think that that narrative can be a really important part of the game experience. It can also be a deterrent. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's not. Right. Do you feel like? Um I feel like um, someone wrote a, like a review of Grand Theft Auto uh, mm-hmm. three when it came out, and uh, and I thought like it was so simple. Yet I thought like, oh, that's so fun. But uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto is you steal a car, you know, that you're not supposed to because it's, right. it's illegal. But anyway, so you steal a car, and uh, and then you can turn the radio, you can listen to the radio station if you want to. Yeah. And he said, um, and um, I think it was like MC Chris actually said this was like as soon as those uh, radio stations, the audio that that they they, they pre made. Uh, you, you start hearing them over loop, start looping. Right. It becomes uh, a, a less interesting game, even though you right. have like all these options. You can walk everywhere you want to. You have missions if you want to, or you just do it at your own pace and just explore. But you know, like at the moment that you know that radio becomes, and you're, you're not driving, like right. you're driving around, and the radio becomes boring. You just well, this game is kind of boring. I just, I'm going to quit now. So that, that's that's so true that the radio station was such an important part of uh, of Grand Theft Auto. And you know, as it went on, they made those um, those uh, th- those audio loops longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they added more and more radio stations in the later games, mm-hmm. um, which which I think is great because I, additionally, you know, you're only hearing um, a piece of it at a time. You're you're driving in your car for a limited period of time. It's it's actually funny at times when I was playing Grand Theft Auto, I would actually drive. I would actually have have driveway moments, you know, where where I was listening to the radio inside inside the game, and I'm just sitting in the car doing nothing else. Yeah, you know, which which is which, which is incredibly incredibly sad in a way. <laughs> yeah. um, but but you know, I was enjoying what I was listening to. And I wanted to hear the end of it. Yeah. Um, but you know, they they um, they built those out in the later games, um, and since you're only hearing um, like a piece of it at a time, you know, sometimes you you rehear something you heard before, but then it gets on to um, uh, you know. 
a piece that you that you stepped out of the car during, mm-hmm. uh, and and so you know it kind of takes a long time for you to hear the entire the entire loop of it. But it right. was it, it was such an interesting part of the game, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. it was it, it was something that 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 gave verisimilitude to the world, um, and it was it was funny in and of itself, and it often had great music playing on it, mm-hmm. um, uh, which right. was just fantastic. It was mm-hmm. um, a really well conceived experience. Right. I feel like that like that that radio play was uh, just the the surprise of the game. You know, that was the thing that you that's yeah. one of the reasons why you played the game was like, yeah, I can walk around, I can do all this stuff. Then, then when you got in there it's like you turn on the radio, like holy cow. You know, right. this is like so I think that you know, it's like that kind of holy cow like type of moment is like Absolutely. what should be in games and it's kind of hard to say like, you know, what that will be, you know, when you yeah. build the game. So I'm pretty sure I mean, when they built the game they're like, hey, let's just Let's build this whole environment, and uh, it's all about this radio station. Right, uh, absolutely. No. So, no, that doesn't really happen, but that, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's kind of hard when you have that, you know, to build a game, to invest in that money and research and, oh, sure. and just sure. like, so yeah. Yeah, I mean that's definitely beyond the resources of um, uh, of of the vast majority of people who don't have you know a couple of million dollars to create a game, um, which which is why you know again I think that's part of the aesthetic element of the game. That's that's part of a uh, a higher level that that doesn't necessarily um, uh, have a, have an effect upon the core gameplay, you know, and th- that's that's really where people should be focusing is on um, the the fundamental things that make the game an enjoyable experience. Um, the higher level um, uh, layers of of narrative and aesthetics, um, I think, are, th- are are wonderful things to bring in, but they are of course more resource intensive mm-hmm. and more challenging to do. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and I want to get to the point. There's a, there's a point in the book where you talk about uh, Monopoly, and um, I was can you explain like I, I'm not sure it was like the, it was there was the original version of Monopoly. Monopoly which, yeah. can you explain like how that relates to persuasive design and sure. Yeah, um, this gets back to procedural rhetoric a bit that I was talking about before. Um, so a lot of people don't know that um, that Monopoly was originally called the Landlord's Game. It was uh, created by a woman named um, Lizzie Maggie, who was an adherent of what is now a fairly obscure and quasi-Marxist economic theory called Georgism um, that uh, advocated the idea that um, that it would be better to replace all forms of taxation with a single tax on land ownership. Um, and the landlord's game was designed specifically to illustrate why that would be a good idea, why mm-hmm. having a single tax on land ownership would be beneficial for everybody, and how the existing prevailing system of, uh, of taxes and, um, and, and rental and, and, uh, and, um, uh, and and the relationship between tenants and landlords was in some sense oppressive. Um, and uh, it was, if, if you look at the original game of the landlord's game, you can see a lot of overlaps with Monopoly. Um, like it has, it has boardwalk on it and, um, you know, it's, it's shaped like a square. Uh, it has go where you collect a hundred dollars every time you go past. It has a jail. Um, the free parking space in Monopoly, um, that was originally, uh, sleeping for free in Central Park, um, <laughs> that's, that's literally what it was, um, and and so uh, a lot of, a lot of that original game design um, was present in the game, um, and it communicated its message um, about taxation entirely through gameplay. There was no overt um, 
um, message inside the game that said, uh, you know, it's better to have a single tax on land than the tax systems we, ter- we currently have. Um, instead, that was revealed through the process of playing the game. And that very much is a perfect example of a procedural rhetoric. Um, now, al- although that was part and parcel of what the original game was, um, when Milton Bradley bought the game in like 1932 or something like that, um, they essentially stripped all of those persuasive elements out of it. The procedural rhetoric was removed from the gameplay, um, and it remained a fundamentally great game, which I think speaks to um, you know, the importance of, uh, of, of creating uh, a game that is in, of, in, is in and of itself, at its heart, an enjoyable experience. I think that's really important, and um, it's, it's such a fitting example of, uh, of, of, of how that principle um, is, is so important. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I, I definitely think so. Yeah, I think it's it's really just you really just want to make sure that your your game is is you know persuasive. Like, so I don't know. Hmm. Right. So. Yeah, one thing that um, you know Jane McGonigal lays out a definition of of what a game is. She has four points. Um, one of them is, has a goal, so you know what the outcome is. It's very clear what it is that you have right. to achieve. It has rules so that there are limitations that keep you from just doing anything you want. And it has a feedback system so that you're always being told, you know, how many points you you've got how far away you are from getting to where you need to go and then it's voluntary we all just sort of want to do it because Mm -hmm. it's fun so we join in Uh, one of the things that I mean I teach so I'm really interested in game uh, like gameplay in terms of education and learning and um, the thing that is really interesting to me about gaming is this idea of a feedback system Mm -hmm. and having the ability of like letting people know where they are and always sort of rewarding them for achieving even small tasks, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I think could really come in handy for websites. Um, You know, being, uh, providing that kind of of feedback to people as, for example, in a web app, you know, when you, how far along you are in progressing through what you need to achieve and Telling them you've done it. Congratulations. Sure. I mean, I th- I think that that's um, really sort of an aspect of usability. That um, y- you know, if people are more aware of where they are um, in terms of a broader progression of events, then they um, are are better equipped to be able to say. I can set an objective for what I'm going to do next and work toward that. You know, it, it divides the experience up into smaller, more digestible pieces, and it orients you uh, in a direction um, uh, toward progression. I think those are good things. And I, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with Jane that um, uh, that feedback feedback loops are an inherent part of games. I mean, I think there are games where um, where you can see that that's not the case. Um, you know, take a simple game like Tic Tac Toe. Um, I mean, it, it just, it just progresses. And I mean, you, you see the status of everything uh, at any one point, uh, but I'm not sure that that's really what she's talking about as a, as a feedback loop. I think feedback loops are a, uh, are a very common and very important convention in game design. Um, but I think that, that a game also stands without them, um, though it may be a yet a less usable experience. And I think that's, um, the lesson you may draw for, um, that you may draw for web design. That, um, that, that to the extent uh, that, that an experience needs somebody 
to be able to get a sense of where they are in the overall progression of something, that um, providing feedback about that is is very important. I mean, that's that does not necessarily apply in game design to web design. Uh, it's more like right. um, recognizing principles that are common across the two. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's that's the reason why checkout processes, you know, have a- annotate what step you're on and so forth, mm-hmm. um, so that so that you have feedback. You have a feedback loop about about where you're going. Um, I would tend to say that the um, uh, the the necessity of feedback loops to um, uh, to to the definition of a game uh, is a bit overstated. Although it is a very important element of creating a usable, comprehensible, and motivated experience. Mm-hmm. Right, and well, I think it's also like you uh, a part of the web is uh, one of the top. Like you, you have a list of uh, top ten things or ten things to. Would start out when making a game, or yeah. like, make a th- and one of them is uh, make it easy to, to start over, and yes. it is uh, it's so frustrating, especially with the whole forums and you know, dealing with forms, which is you know kind of tough if you're if you're building out, you know, starting out with web or whatever. But you know, just to be able to say, hey, I just need to restart, you know, right. I just and and like uh, you know, forums have a reset button. It's pretty easy to do, but no one puts a reset button in things. But it's just uh, it's so frustrating when you, frustrating when you go through a whole like. Process of, of ordering and so that where you just can't like oh I need to back up and you know right and so I think that that's part of like that kind of relates to the web and and UX in terms of just making it easier for the people to you know if they make they if they mess up it's okay and right. also not to you know and have clear concise and maybe funny uh, error messages and not be like really sure not, don't leave your error messages up to programmers to write sure. you know that might be a good start but uh, sure. and uh, yeah so I think that's you know there's a lot of like really cool things that that, in, that are in your book that I like like especially this top 10 list this is really good I, I call it top Thank 10 you. list I don't call it top 10 <laughs> I call it top 10 list but it's actually just 10 things so but yeah, uh, but yeah. yeah and, and you know usability is a really important part of game design it really is um, and I actually think that um, that um, playtesting is one of the best avenues for people who um, are involved in user experience design and to learn more about um, game design can follow uh, in order to um, uh, in order to uh, get more into the game design world. And it's, it's a, um, it's you know, when we say playtest, that means just playing the game that you're building. Um, well, it, it means um, doing something that's very much like a user test, um, where you sit down with somebody and um, you have them, you know, execute tasks inside the game, and you observe and you listen to what happens as they go through it. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a skill set that um, it's 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 a broader. Um, practice than just usability testing is, mm-hmm. but usability. But usability is an element of play testing. Um, play testing looks at other factors as well, um, like like engagement and um, and and conflict and places where people get stuck and things like that. Um, but at the same time, the skill set that that user experience designers have honed over many many years um, testing uh, testing user interfaces translate extremely well to playtesting. And in fact, playtesting is something that's kind of under-practiced in game design right now. Um, a lot of games sort of do suffer um, usability problems. I mean, you were mentioning before how being able to restart is um, is really important inside a game. There are a lot of big game designers who miss that point mm-hmm. um, yeah. where, you know, once you die, it <clears throat> takes another three minutes mm-hmm. to reload and then you're set back to a point where you feel very frustrated. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think that's a result of the fact 
fact that um, that that the game design world is not necessarily oriented toward thinking about things like usability. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that um, that our practice can bring to that world. I think that's uh, you know I think there's mutual benefit to be um, found in um, the user experience design world and the um, game design world coming close together and having a cross pollination uh, mm-hmm. of ideas. Right. I mean, like a game like Temple Run. Uh, right. I just like, hey, I'm dead. Uh, let's do it again. You know, just, right, exactly. Yeah, I, and, and I feel and, like that's really playing too much into my ADD. I think that's right. Just really, uh, right, <laughs> or, or Angry Birds. Angry Birds, where yeah. you know you throw one bird and you can already see it's not going exactly where you want it to go. So you just, oh, I'll just reset it, and, right, and yeah. instantly you're back in and you're giving it a go again. Right. You know, that's great. I mean, that's that's very usable, um, and uh, and it makes the experience in some ways more fulfilling because you feel like it's somehow efficient. You know, you're yeah. um, you're working very um, uh, very efficiently on the one thing that you want to be involved with, which is um, executing the game and and winning it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, and then and then one of the things uh, one of the things is uh, I don't give the whole book away. Like uh, people have to buy the book to find the whole top ten, but uh, is uh, don't cheat and um, right. And can you explain a little bit about like no cheat as it explains to like games sure. and sure. And um, well, that really has to do with. Um, uh, with power inside a game, and the fact that there there is an asymmetry in a video game uh, between the power of the person playing it and the power of the machine, um, because the machine can um, can do things that 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 the player cannot do, it can restrict them from doing it, and furthermore the um, uh, the rules. And the actions that the uh, computer is executing don't have to be disclosed to the person who's playing it. And so, for example, um, in, in the book, I talk about um, a hypothetical game, a hypothetical uh, computerized blackjack game, um, where you know it might be very tempting to cheat it a little bit um, when you know the card is revealed for the computer to determine at that point which card it should be that comes up um, you know rather than having a, a, a deck of um, of predetermined cards you know determined based on the difficulty level that the person has selected whether the dealer is going to get an ace or whether the the dealer is going to get a 10 um, uh, and that's cheating you know anybody who found out that the game was doing that would immediately feel like this experience was unfair and they would give up on it um although uh it's easier to do that thing than it is to create an art a sort of mini artificial intelligence for the dealer um to determine when it's going to hit when it's going to stand um doing that uh, is much more worthwhile because ultimately, when people play the game over and over and over, um, any way that that game is cheating will become apparent mm-hmm. because um, because over many iterations, you'll begin to discern the places where um, where where it's cheating it, and you know you, you can't you can't prove it, you can't um, you can't point at the game and say, hey, you you're you're cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, and so the only thing that the player is really left to do at that point is just give up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so cheating in, in a game is, uh, is really worth avoiding because it's something that people just resent. Right. Um, right? And, uh, and it's something that they will recognize. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to play this tennis game, and I know the computer is cheating. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and and I mean, how do, and how does that make you feel when you find out that it's cheating? Oh, I'm going to beat it down. Don't worry. Exactly. Don't, don't worry. I'm going to. But yeah, so <laughs> like you resent it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, people. I, yeah, but, I, yeah. It's just it's just annoying. Like, like everyone else is just like, I can beat, but this like this one player is just like 
what are you are, you know what's going to happen before I know I, right okay. I mean that's I think that's sort of a, a human attribute. We have a, a fundamental revulsion mm-hmm. to the idea of cheating, and, um, and you know, e- even when it's coming from a computer, um, we're, g- we're going to think that's unfair. That's not the way that things should be, and we're going to stop playing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> on the other, on the other side, and I think these are related, is uh, when the mechanics of behind the scene mechanics become so obvious. Not that it's necessarily cheating, but just that you know what it's doing and it's now not a challenge to you because you know the rules that it's playing by and you can predict right. how it's going to to the what the outcome will be right and i mean i think both of those are basically you know we play games for the challenge and once we see either it's cheating so there is no challenge because right. a challenge is only something that you can somehow succeed at or it's so apparent what's happening there's no challenge because i know how to win because i know how it all works you need to find that middle ground to right keep people engaged absolutely that's that's such a great point that you know um that that if a game is not um designed with uh, a sufficiently robust system behind it that it can become very boring um because you can run out of things to do you can run out of interesting things to discover and i think that's something that you know they have discovered in Place like Foursquare and other sort of gamified sites where this whole idea of you get a badge for showing up, you get a badge for doing this task, and they've started throwing in these badges that just sort of appear, right? They're mm-hmm. not, they're, they're randomly generated. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, sort of like, oh boy, people are now seeing there's no challenge, really. I'll right. go to this cafe again and again and again. Right. But when you add this kind of, whoop, something pops up, it's a surprise, Right. People become re-engaged in it. Right. And, you know, even though um, uh, Foursquare is sort of the poster child for gamification, you know, in a lot of ways, I see appeal inside of Foursquare. I really do. I think that, um, that it might not um, have been implemented in all the best ways all the time. But I think there is something very interesting about just having something where, um, uh, wh- where you're posed with challenges to achieve in life. Uh, I mean, that's... There's a lot of potential inside of that, um, and you know, inside Foursquare, it's very commercialized about you know going to this um, particular movie or going to um, uh, uh, to this particular uh, restaurant or something like that. But if if it weren't exploitative in that sense, you know, if it if it were just about getting out and doing interesting things in life, which I mean, to an extent, Foursquare is about, um, then I think that's that's kind of a great experience actually, um, because. You know, there's the whole aspect of discovery about how to win the badge in the first place, and then there's the uh, the challenge of of getting out and actually trying to do that thing. Um, I mean, I think there is a gamefulness inside of that, and you know, I, I tend to be less critical of Foursquare than I am of other sorts of gamified experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> I mean, one one aspect of Foursquare, it's not just getting the badges for an intrinsic sort of reward. Oh, I'm so happy I've got it. But there's that whole right. social aspect where you're like right. comparing your badges with other people's badges Absolutely. and you're perhaps vying with some other person to be the mayor of whatever. Yeah. And, you know, they're able to do that because there's a huge community and it's tied into a social network. Um, and I think a lot of other people are trying to, to, to leverage that, but they fail because it's basically, you know, somebody with a forum starts adding a badge Mm. system and people are not socially engaged enough in the site to really 
give a darn whether they've got a badge and someone else doesn't have a badge. But you and know. you know, you're hitting on social, which I think is is one of the really really interesting things about modern game design, very modern game design, is um is how you can have these sort of hyper social experiences with dozens or hundreds of other people at one time. And I think that's interesting for a number of reasons. One, because, um, I mean, in the distant past, um, game, games were played primarily for social purposes. You know, um, uh, if you were playing Monopoly or if you were playing backgammon or if you were playing um, basketball or baseball, um, that was really an intrinsically multiplayer social experience. And in, that, in, in fact, the game itself was often just a pretense for people to get together in the first place. It was, it was something to do um, in order to facilitate the social experience that you wanted to have with other people. Um, and that feeling of connectedness um, was somewhat lost when um, video games came along um, as single-player experiences because you, know, you, you could have a great experience that was um, entirely... Uh, with a machine, just you and a machine alone together um, for uh, extended periods of time. Once um, we got into the the age where uh, you know we had mobile devices that were connected to the internet and we had games on them, then new experiences started opening up that I think are fascinating. Um, that you know. Th- these are enabling kinds kinds of social experiences that have never been possible in the past, where people who are separated from me, from each other by distances or by time feel as though they're right next to one another. I mean, I play um, I play words with friends kind of a lot, um, and one of the reasons why I play it, I, I play it with um, a lot of people in my family. One of the reasons why I play it is because it actually makes me feel closer to people in my family, and I think that's extraordinary. You know that um, that that people who um, uh, who maybe I haven't interacted with uh, in a while, now I feel like I'm interacting with them all the time because you know right. we're we're in words with friends together, and mm-hmm. we're we're meeting each other several times a day and having a little tiny discussion uh, and and there's a there's this sort of intimacy to words with friends that's really extraordinary where um you, you know you, you feel like you have a very direct insight into that person's mind um, and uh, you know you two are sharing something that is not for anybody else in the world. I think that's just wonderful. I think that's one of the really fascinating things that's going on with games these days. And one of the things that that really may point to a direction that games can create real social change in the world, um, you know, by building feelings of connectedness between people. Yeah, definitely. So words with friends, I, I'm not super familiar with it, but you don't have to be there at the same time, right? You can play no. asynchronously. That's exactly right. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I put down a word and uh, I send it, and that person will be notified immediately that I've sent that word, but they don't have to look at it right away. Um, and whenever they do look at it, they can take their time and decide what move they're going uh, up to a week and decide what move they're going to make next. Um, and so you are separated from that person both in terms of space and time, yet you feel like they're sitting right next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's extraordinary, right? Yeah, yeah it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I mean, how often have there been experiences like that 
in the past where something like that has even been possible. Yeah, and sometimes you don't want them right next to you, especially when they play a hundred point word, and you're like, right, what the heck? Man? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like oh, I'm not playing with you anymore. <laughs> like, like, dude, if you're right here, I just totally like sock you right now. But uh, yeah, let's 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 do hanging with friends instead. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, John, you conclude the book with a uh, chapter on how games are changing now. Uh, maybe you could tell us how, how do you see, I mean, it sounds like this is part of what we were just talking about is right. the evolution of gameplay. Do you see other types of changes that are, are yeah. happening now and in the future? So, so we already talked about social. Um, one of the other ones that, uh, that I think is really revolutionary right now is, um, is mobile and how, um, just how credible that, tablets and smartphones have turned out to be as game platforms, which I think a couple of years ago was very unexpected. Um, that, you know, the, the home console was sort of the, uh, the, the way that most people um, who played games interacted with them, you know, with their PlayStation or with their Xbox. Um, that model sort of starts to become seem sort of stodgy and limiting by comparison to what you can do with mobile devices, which have so many advantages built into them. I mean, they have such rich technology. They have touch screens, they have microphones, they have cameras, they have GPS, they have accelerometers, they have connectivity to the internet. All of these things that um, can be employed inside the game. And I think that's, that's a huge advantage for designers mm-hmm. um, beyond what's really possible inside an experience where you're, you're you know, in one place inside a room staring at a screen. Um, with mobile devices, you can be anywhere, and it can enable entirely new kinds of experiences. You know, uh, while you're commuting on the train, or when you're um, uh, when you're when you're in in a boring meeting or something like that, you can uh, you can be uh, engaging in games in entirely new contexts that weren't mm-hmm. possible before. Yes, yeah, I mean. Um, as so many of our talks here on our podcast uh, go, we we always tend to end up somewhere talking about mobile by the end right. of it. And I think really it's, you're you're right. That's a game changer uh, for right. design, for game design, web design, and for really how we're we're leading our lives into the future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I also think it was just with. Um, with with mobile, like you know, we, we talked to some earlier examples about like web and the intersection, and the definitely the geolocation example. I think you know, just to be able to right. interact that with a website with app doesn't you know not necessarily a whole game, but just to be able to say, hey, you're actually here at this location. I'll grant you access. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that's exactly. Just like, yeah, that's yeah. like geofencing right. or whatever. But yeah, it's you know, they're entirely new things that just were not possible in the past. That create such a rich playground for designers to craft things that people have never seen before. I think it's really, really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think games are a wonderful way to, to, to explore how much you can actually do with a mobile device. And I think that you know, there are a lot of people who are actively trying to do that right now. I think that's just tremendous. So, um, so mobile is one of the things that's really changing. I think another thing that's becoming more and more common with game design is, um, uh, is, is the creation of almost artful experiences. Um, I think that's something that, um, uh, that a lot of people are starting to take a greater interest in, uh, you know, creating a emotional engagement 
mm-hmm. in the game um, with uh, with the player and with the things that they're interacting with. Um, there was a great game, uh, a couple of great games from a few years ago for the PlayStation uh, called uh, Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, which were very very emotional games and and surprisingly built around. Um, uh, around constructing relationships between you and a virtual character inside the game, hmm. um, and in the case of Eco, it was um, it, it, it was a, a game that involved um, a boy and a little girl, and um, and they were running through um, uh, this this palace together, trying to escape. And you know, over time, you, you really gained an emotional connection for those characters. And the follow up game to it was called Shadow of the Colossus, where there was um, a similar sort of relationship between. Um, a young man and um, and a horse, where um, you know y- you developed the sense that this horse was a real creature, that it was something that was um, was living because it was so vivid. And um, I mean, in, you know, it would um, it would call when you came, and you spent long periods of the game um, riding across landscapes with this horse. And it becomes a, a, a really important character in the game, and you sort of become engaged with it. Like you're, mm-hmm. you, you can't help but have those um, those synapses in your brain that um, that that naturally try to form emotional relationships with other um, with other beings. Fire when um, when when you're playing this game, and there's sort of a tragic. Uh, point in the game um, where the horse dies, and it's really surprisingly affecting. Um, so I, th- I think there's there's a lot of potential for that inside of games, and I see more and more designers trying to turn toward that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. By the way, I didn't know the horse died. I haven't gotten that far yet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is probably a good point to, to wrap it up. It's been great okay. talking to you, John. Um, how can people, are you on Twitter? How can people yeah. follow you or be in touch with you? Sure. So my, um, uh, my Twitter handle is Playful Design, um, which is also the name of the book. And uh, you can look up the book online at uh, playfuldesignbook.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. I thank yeah. you for your time, Guy. I had a great time. Our thanks to John Ferreira for joining us on Non-Breaking Space. As always, check out the show notes at nonbreakingspace.tv for all links and sites discussed during the episode. We're also on the iTunes podcast listing, and we'd really appreciate if you subscribed and left a rating or review. It helps us spread the word about the show. In addition, you can follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Non-Breaking Space to hear Matt Griffin say, But, like, I designed for the web. Why do we need to know HTML and CSS? Uh, because you're designing for the web. It's, that's, that's <laughs> the thing. How, how do you know how to, how to design it if you don't know what it is? Mm-hmm.